God has you marked and accounted for as sanctified, holy, and set apart, right? As as marked as as a member of the royal priesthood that He is building His temple. If you're marked that way by God, it doesn't matter what can happen to you here. Welcome to another episode of the Carpe Fide Podcast, where if the shoe fits, you wear it. And if the truth hurts, you bear it. I am Justin Gruber. And I am Jesse Gruber. And today we hope you, you will seize question, the faith. Jesse, we'll repeat it I'll so repeat that it's it. on the audio. Lou, do you have a question, bud? You, you want to? Okay. Lou. Um, I'm just not trying to think of how to ask it. So, um, Alex was talking about, um, you know, there are no atheists. There are only those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So what do you say to people who sincerely believe there's no God or like people who fell away from the faith? Yeah, so Lou's question is, what do you say to people who have uh, fallen away from God or, or who say that they, or say that there is no God while we know or while, while the contention is that no one is truly an atheist because, well, of the scriptures? So what do you say to that person? Yeah, I think one of the things we have to realize is the, unbe- the, the professing atheist, right? Um, they don't need so much apologetic debate as, they need, as much as they need to be evangelized. And so if I'm talking to somebody and say, well, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God. And I say, I know you're saying that, and you may really genuinely believe that in your mind, but that's an effect of sin. The Bible says that... Every man knows, knows God, and they, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Um, you know, and obviously they're going to say, "I don't believe the Bible," right? That's the next argument, typically. And I would say that I would encourage you not to get away from what the Bible says and try to debate them on philosophical or different terms because you've given up the highest authority. You know, I don't believe in the Bible. I know you don't believe the Bible. The Bible says that the fool says in, there's, in his heart there is no God. So you're actually supporting the Bible with your claim which kind of throws them for a loop because they don't expect me to say that. Um, and, I, and, fool in the, and I tell them, fool doesn't mean dumb. Fool means somebody who's willfully in rebellion against God. The, you know, that's what God's word's going to say you're going to say. So I don't know if that answers your question fully, but I think sometimes we get caught up in these apologetic debates. And I used to teach apologetics in high, at a high school for a couple years. And I would do these debates and go to these public venues and you can debate for hours and hours and hours, and there's always another objection. There's always another question. And uh, there was a night where I was going for a couple hours with these guys, and I said, you know what, and I just preached the gospel. And there was no questions after that. Their mouths were silenced. And so I would say, you know, somebody who says they're an atheist, I, I, be- I know that that's what you genuinely believe, is what I would tell them. But that's because your mind is so in rebellion against God that you've suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. The Bible says you're suppressing truth. You need to be honest with yourself. And the Bible says in his heart, in the Bible says the fool says in his heart, there is no God. I go that direction. Did that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. No, yeah. Do we all get to say something? I didn't know how this worked. So, um, I <laughs> uh, so. There, like to answer the second part of that, you said atheists are someone who's walked away from the Lord and is now um, acting in that capacity. Uh, when I was in the army, there was one of our medics. He he was a Christian. He claimed to be a Christian his whole life, but now he was agnostic. And I said to our chaplains, we had a pretty solid chaplain in that unit. And I said to him, I was like, I just don't get it. You know, I, how could this guy have probably more knowledge than I do of the Bible? And me, you know, I'm an idiot. And God touched, you know, God's got old me. How could a guy who's smart, you know? And um, he said, he goes, 90% of the time, someone walks away from the Lord because they want to chase their sexual sin. And he said that you go ask him what his beef is with God, right? And he goes, I guarantee you. That's what was sure enough. I went and I asked him. And then I said, Chapman Porter, you're absolutely right. So I think a lot of it is exactly what you're saying. The sin leads you to justify it in your mind. And so if you can peel back that onion a little bit, and you can yeah. and expose that sin problem. But then also tackle it in love. Tackle it. But tackle it in a way where it's like, well, Christ will forgive you of that. you know. And, and really, when you follow that standard, your life is much more fulfilled because you're living for God. Because where has this led you now? Because you're a bitter, in, in you know, this guy's case, uh, Sergeant Smith is like, you're a bitter, bald man. That's what I used to tell him. You're a bitter, bald man. You know. Yeah. 
I'm happy. Yeah. <laughs> no, and uh, you know, and he, you know, because when you're you have a relationship, a close relationship, especially with someone, you can jest and you can joke. Um, but once we got down to the heart of the issue, we, the conversations were a lot more real. And so, especially someone who's walked away, I would just, I would just echo the wisdom that was put on me. Ninety percent of the time, it's because there's a, a sexual sin that they wanted to chase, um, and mostly, likely, it's sex outside of marriage or sex with someone else but their wife uh, that they now have to justify uh, that there is no God in their mind. As you say that, that like makes total sense to me. It's like, oh, like now I see that in things that I didn't realize that, but it's like that makes total sense. It's not usually an intellectual issue, it's a moral one. Well, I remember like when I realized that too, because when I was like younger in faith, I got really into apologetics and I used to try to have like these intellectual like conversations with people. And it, like you said, it's just one after the other, after the other, after the other. And I remember, like, I found, like, Living Waters Ministry. And it's just, like, no matter who he talks to or what their background is, he goes, like, straight to the gospel. And, like, everyone, like, intuitively, like, knows. Like, no matter what their objections are, like, it just, they intuitively know. And, and yeah, so I, like... Yeah. It's an issue of the heart, not the issue of the head. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, I think it serves as a really great warning as well. I mean, that, that's that's a, that's a very interesting. That's a very interesting thing that your chaplain said. But um, I mean, I would I would say let that serve as a warning to us all as well. The, the sin that we try to hide leads to places that that are far from God. And I, I think Alex, you mentioned it. Um, that you know that that the person who feels farthest away from God is so intimately connected to to the sin in their life. Um, so I would say let that be a warning also and, a, and an encouragement to to repent from those sins and confess them. Not a question, but I, I like to applaud the both of you. Uh, very good presentation. I have ADHD, and to keep me sitting here for five and a half hours without them off or running outside, uh, commendable. Uh, Takeaways. Whenever I go to a seminar or anything, you know, you always try to walk away with something. And Alex, you, you talked about sin and repenting. My takeaway on that was how I need to learn to hate my sin. Mm. And, and I'm like, I've been missing that. I've been sinning. I know it's sin, you know. But I think sometimes, too, we enjoy our sin. Right. You know, so are you really... Sorry, are you repenting, and do you hate your sin? So that gave me another approach. Um, John, yourself, you brought up uh, ten things to complete your mission, and I thought, gee, that's, that's it. You know, what is your mission, and what are your steps? And I'm like, duh. <laughs> but uh, at one of the breaks, I did stop down or sit down, and it actually came to me pretty good. My ten steps. And what they've been, a lot of it was what you guys spoke about. So, appreciate that. Yeah, it's think, really great. I think the key to hating your sin, guys, uh, is learning to delight in Christ more. Right? So, uh, if you're a reader, Jonathan Edwards has something called the excellencies of Christ. Right? The more you delight, for example, let's just from married, the more a guy is delighting in his wife, the less he has interest to delight in other women, right? The more you delight in healthy eating, the less you're going to delight in junk food, right? So the key to overcoming the pleasure of sin, because sin is pleasurable, nobody sins because they hate it. The only way to overcome truly the pleasure of sin is with a greater pleasure. And Psalm 1611 says that the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore, which also happens to be the position where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. I've got a bit of a follow-up to that. Um, how do you transition from that hating your sin, but not getting stuck in a trap of depression over your sin. Mm. Yeah, the, the question is, how do you, um, how do you get into a, a good, healthy pattern of hating your sin while not being completely crushed by despair and depression over the fact that you're continuing to sin? I think Robert Murray McShane said, for every one look at your sin, take 10 looks at Christ. Right? Um, you don't want a morbid curiosity with your sin. Hate, hate your sin to the degree that it brings you to Jesus. But you can really, here's the reality, the devil is so, sin is so complex in that you can actually make an idol of repentance. 
But if repentance never brings you to the cross, it never brings you to Christ, you can just get stuck in that pattern that you're talking about of this the depression. Um, allow your hatred to bring you to freedom, not to further enslave you. So keep, I would say keep going to the gospel. Keep going to the freedom, right? Keep going to the other side of the cross, the resurrection, the new creation, the liberation, right? The adoption, you know, focus on the benefits given to you by Christ versus just the sin that made you have to come to Christ. Yeah, and hatred and despair kind of feel like they're linked together anyway. It kind of feels like they're both... They both have that negative, but obviously when the object of the hatred is sin, we're talking about a positive action. But when you look at the, the, the reality of Scripture, we are, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. So there's, a, there's a, a different flavor to it. And then God makes us alive to, to Christ, which means what's dead in our lives then is the trespasses and sins. We are no longer right the the old man we are the new man in christ so you have to have the perspective like the puritans would say right to mortify mortify the flesh there needs to be a level of humiliation we put onto our sin and and you want to kill sin you want to murder sin you want to to actively be engaged in its demise and that changes the perspective of something you would see don't stay you can't stay in that that hatred towards despair uh, you want to kill it. So even if you sin, you still want to kill it, right? If you're hunting a bear and the bear tries to attack you, you don't say, oh, well, I didn't get him. <laughs> no, you you go revenant on that thing. You're, you get every knife and whatever you got and you hope and pray, <laughs> right? Like you go after it. So kill the sin. Like even if, even if like we can't get caught, oh, I sinned again. No, all right, yeah. Kill it. Kill the sin. It's not that's not wasn't the end right there. No, kill it. And I think sorrow, um, which would be a, another a biblical way, I guess, of saying depression, um, <clears throat> leads to Heathen. repentance, or should should lead us to God. You know, sorrow leads to the man of sorrows, who's well acquainted with grief. Um, and when we're sorrowing over our sin, I, I think it's a good thing. I mean, I think David. Um, in, in Chronicles chapter 21, uh, when, when God gives him the three options of uh, how Israel is going to be punished for him and his action of uh, counting the army. And then David said to Gad, who was the prophet, I am in great distress, <laughs> right? That's that great sorrow. His sin is ever before him, right? I'm in great distress. Let me now fall into the hand of Yahweh for his compassions are exceedingly abundant. And do not let me fall into the hand of man. And I think our temptation a lot of times is to fall into the hand of man when we hit sorrow, especially our sorrow for our sin. I'm just going to, and that hand of man is ourselves, right? We just want to sin more to cover to that fleeting pleasure. Um, but David, you know, even, and not just in here, but with Bathsheba, when they lose their first, their first child as a, as a judgment from God uh, for the sin that he committed, what he does is he, he, he weeps that God may change his mind. He fasts. He's on the ground. And when the child dies, everyone's so afraid to say anything to him. Um, because, man, if he did this when the child's living, what's he going to do when the child's dead? What does he do when the child's dead? When he realizes what God's will is for his life, he gets up and he goes into the house of the Lord. Um, and I think that's, that's a good thing with us. That sorrow should lead to a godly repentance. It should lead to coming to the house of God and leading... Uh, us to wanting to to come to him, you know, fall into his mercies, his compassion, um, and when we see that victory, we praise we praise the fact there is a victory. But in John Owen's book, The Mortification of Sin, John Owen's contention with Paul's this is kind of skipping to Paul is that Paul's thorn in the flesh was actually a sin struggle that he had, that he wrestled with his entire life, that kept him humble, because he had this great revelation of the third heavens. However, he was kept humble because he had a sin struggle that he struggled with his entire life. So I think also having the knowledge that we are not, and not being okay with the fact we're never going to be perfect, right? Because we're always striving for that perfection, but also just knowing we are never going to reach that perfection helps us in those times of sorrows, that we have a God who understands that as well. And that sometimes our sin struggles, that the struggle God allows us, you know, that struggle 
is to keep us humble before him. I think Psalm 51 is probably the best picture of what genuine sorrow over your sin looks like. Uh, The danger is staying in Psalm 51 and never getting to Psalm 32. So if you think of a coin, Psalm, Psalm 32 is the other side of the coin. He begins by saying, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man whose iniquity Yahweh will not take into account. Right? So never forget the promises and don't hold on to your sin longer than God does. If God has forgiven you, once you repent it, be done with it because he's done with it as far as the east is from the west. Right? Repentance, let repentance bring you to the promises. Um, because here's how pride can work in our hearts, right? A reverse pride, a morbid curiosity with our sin and our repentance to the point that we make, we put ourselves above God and say, well, I can't receive his grace. I can't receive his love. I can't receive his When you've done that, you've put your standard higher than the Lord's. Look what David did in Psalm 32, how blessed is the man who is forgiven, right? That's why we come back to the promises of God. I, I struggle with, what the world would call depression, right? VA just wants to throw meds at me. I'm like, no, thank you, right? What do I need? I need the promises of God. I don't need, you know, a pill. So go back to the, when that happens, I get it. Spurgeon struggled with this immensely. Make the Psalms like a rich place for you, man. The Psalms, I would say, find those promises in the Psalms and commit them to heart. How blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. I'm forgiven. I don't need to hold on to this any longer. Yeah, I was I was gonna I was gonna piggyback on the on the promises of God. Um, I mean, they they make booklets uh, topical even with different promises throughout the scriptures. I have one. I went through a period of really like really bad anxiety a couple of years ago um, throughout the winter, and um, I bought one of those books. It was immensely helpful. But the the other area um, that I think is is worth noting. Sorry, I'm like totally chiming in here as a moderator. <laughs> but uh, the the other the other thing that I think is so incredibly important um, is that. Um, it is harder to come out of those things the more isolated one is. Mm. And so the further and deeper you are into community, uh, like with your family, with your church, um, the light exposes the darkness and it it helps it lose its power. That's Ephesians 5. And so... um, which which is extremely difficult to do when we're depressed. It's it's the opposite of what we want to do when we're feeling depressed or or anxious. We want to you know recluse ourselves uh, into into solidarity. But um, the promises of God are, are much easier um, are much easier to see and recognize when we have other people helping us and encouraging us in those same things as well, or even helping us and encouraging us in those things when we can't. When we just yeah. actually literally cannot, we're just stuck in the darkness. So I just want to throw that out there. And to that, sorry, I think to Jesse's point, the, the, where you're really going to reap the benefits of that is when you learn to confess your sin, not only to God, but to one another. Because if you don't, if people don't know where your sin's at and how you're confessing and struggling with it, they can't give you that encouraging word, that Hebrews 10, 24 component of it. Um, you know, have those good brothers that you can say like, man, I've just been struggling with this and I brought it to God because then they can uplift you and carry you. That's pretty, it, it's very, it makes you feel very vulnerable. You know what I mean? To, yeah. to lay that on the line. Right. And not knowing necessarily what their troubles are, not that that's going to make things better, but right, I think, it's not always easy to throw it out on paper. Right, and I think one of the great benefits of that is like I think 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. You're not telling another man something he doesn't already have have struggled with. Like, oh my gosh, I looked at this. I looked at porn. <gasps> What's that? No. No man said <laughs> said no man ever. Yeah, you can. There's a lot of vanity. Like, it does porn, anger, uh, lethargy, sluggishness, laziness, uh, arrogance. Every one of you in here, I will guarantee, I will guarantee you struggle with one or all of them somewhere in that list. And, and, and they feed into each other. Right. right. Some of the most angry men are the we men, porn. Right. Men are not complex. We are not, I mean, to, to a, a lesser degree, but we're, we're not really complex. Um, we are the, we are the, the, the battle, the the battler, the weapon of of the creation, and and we're pretty simple. We're a pretty simple machine, and so those those areas are pretty much the areas that that cause tension in our own on our lives. 
those sins creep into our relationships and they're the ones that tend to control us. So you're not, you, like I'd love to tell you you're special. You're not, right? You're not special. You sin just like the rest of us and we all sin the same mostly together. So, And to that vulnerability point, just to you other guys out there, if a brother opens up to you and shares something, don't be a gossip. Be a man about it. Hear it. It was said in confidence. Encourage that brother and don't be a gossip. Like, man, like there's nothing less manly than a dude who's gossiping about another dude. Just don't be that guy. Because Justin will get you. It's very womanly, you know? No, womanish. Very woman-ish. 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 Sorry, womanish. Godly women don't do that. I still don't understand all those categories from the SR. I have to go back and re-listen. We're going to do that again. You know what? At the end, we're just going to do that one more time. We're going to try it again. Apparently, I said some things wrong, so I do apologize on that. <laughs> it's fine. I we were just all confused. It's, it's not a bad. It, 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 ended, it ended great. Elder John, did you have a question? Yeah, um, you guys kind of came around to it, but uh, oftentimes we struggle with our sin, and we all make it personal. It's my sin. It's my responsibility to repent. But we don't understand that um, uh, in, in um, 2 Peter 1, it says, God has given us everything for life and godliness. All right? It's a true statement, right? But we've, we fail to understand what, what has God given us that we can, that can help us right here, right now. And one of those things is it, it's, it's, uh, it's the church, it's the body of believers around us that um, God has gifted uh, and God has, has, has graciously grown to help us. We as men oftentimes think of think of ourselves as as islands, right? It's my you know, it's my sin. I'll conquer this. It's it's you know, it's it's my family. I'll take care of it. It's you know, it's my child. I'm going to raise it. But we fail to understand that um, the scripture and James also calls us to confess our sins one to another. Okay, and and decide to just kind of speak into your question to, to answer that is if I feel guilty over my sin, that guilt that that guilt is you know coming from me, but it has no place to go. But perhaps my brothers at Missio Day Church or whatever church you might be involved in should have the wherewithal to, to, to make themselves available. So it's not just my burden, it's our burden. Because we're also not, not only supposed to confess one to another, we're also supposed to bear one another's burdens, right? And part of that is sharing the, the help needed to get you over the sin you're entrapped in, okay? Galatians 6.1 says, you know, if somebody's caught in a sin, we're supposed to go after them, right? We're supposed to be careful how we do that. But there's a whole church concept. There's a whole family of God concept that is often missed. And I want to encourage us as the old elder at Messy today that we need to take special care in, in what we walk away with. We are not islands as men, all right? We are called to do godly things. And it is clear to Scripture that God rests upon the man of the family certain things to be responsible for. A godly man is also going to be one that repents often. How many sins are you supposed to repent of? Every one of them, right? You think you can do that alone? You think you, 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 think you can conquer those sins as conquering men? Manly valor. No, you can't. You need each other. Okay, so I want to extend you know, that understanding too. If you're wallowing in your guilt and your sin, uh, or, or, you know, and, and confess it to one of your brothers yeah. in the Lord that loves Jesus and walk together with them yeah. and see how light the load can be calm. So I just want yeah. to encourage that. But you guys kind of got yeah. there in the end. And I think a good test to do, oh to, to, to your point, a good test is think about the men that are your church that you got relationships with and then ask yourself, do I know how to pray for them specifically? And if you don't, then approach them and be like, brother, where are you at? What are you struggling with? That opened up those doors. You know, that was one of the things that, being a church planner, I found that I get so caught up in trying to help everybody else that I wasn't really working on confessing and having people do that for me. And uh, I have an older man who said, well, how can I pray for you? So just even asking one another, how can I be praying and, and drilling down there will help open up those channels of kind of open confession and vulnerability. Yeah, I think, by the way, I did ask Dad if he wanted to come up here and answer these questions on the microphone. He said that he was fine. He wasn't going to do this. Um, uh, <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think one of the most beautiful things, and Justin, you could attest to this, uh, like at our church and some of our men's groups, uh, there, there are times when, when men will just open up and be like, yeah, no, I, I messed up. I've been doing great for a long time. I looked at pornography this week or I started masturbating this week or whatever. And, like, this is the like I've been in church for a very long time but I've been in our church since we planted it 10 years ago and probably just one of the coolest things was just like 
oh yeah man we'll definitely be, we'll just come around you and just pray for you like yeah we'll, we'll help keep you accountable like sure like there there wasn't that oh my gosh that, there was there was no pearl clutching like how, how terrible you are and like we need more of that in in every church um you know and yeah so it was a beautiful thing i just wanted to share because it can be it can happen it can be achieved yeah jeff The book is The Mortification of Sin by John Owen. I would highly recommend that to everyone. I, that is a very good, I'm sure you guys read it. It's a very good book. Justin said he's read every book. So I just look at him and I assume, you know, even ones that haven't been. No, but yet. I do enjoy the Puritans, you know. My friend, Brandon Scaff, he really likes the Puritans, so. Yeah, some people. Yeah. Um, that's an inside joke. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. Are there, more, are there any other questions? Then, uh, oh, they're good. There's so many good questions. Oh, um, Alex, you had mentioned another book I think was by one of like, the Jonathan Edwards. Oh, The Excellencies of Christ. That one. Jo- Jonathan Edwards. <laughs> you guys no, just, just read all of them. Do okay? not give Jeff any That's more. That's why they're just called the Puritans. Just read all of them. <laughs> the, ex- uh, the excellencies of Christ. And also, don't give Jeff any more books that he has doesn't have enough time to read. That's enough. Maybe Jeff. he'll read. That's all the books you can write down right Maybe now. Maybe he'll read them. It's enough. You don't don't do that. He'll read them. He'll buy them. He'll be like these words. Man. Does anybody have a copy of X the, of, of Jonathan Edwards? All of his Jonathan. Can you just he wants to borrow them? Anybody? Anyone? If you're a, if you're an e-reader, they're almost all available for like ninety nine cents on Kindle. By the way, ninety nine cents. On Look Kindle. at that. The Kindle's only four hundred dollars. <laughs> <laughs> you can use your phone app. All right, Ty. Th- Jeff, or, is that good? You got your list. All right, cool. All right, Ty. What's up? What's up? Well, first of all, thanks, fellas, for everything. Really, really good stuff. Convicting um, you guys all three mentioned at some point culture kind of touched upon it and we live in this culture now where everything goes there's no definition of right or wrong because that changes every day and everything's okay as long as it makes you happy and we as Christians have to be counter to that and say to people hey the lifestyle that you're living is actually going to condemn you and we do that in love, but it doesn't, it's very hard for that to come across to people. And especially the way the media paints Christians as hateful bigots that just want to tell everyone that they're wrong and Christians are better than them. So I'm wondering if you could just give some thoughts on, as you're giving people um, a convicting message, how do you show the love mm. in that as well? Yeah, I'll, well, I'll just try to rephrase the question. Um, so basically, and Ty, you can correct me if I clarify this improperly. Um, uh, the world is crazy. Christians are looked on as, as hateful bigots whenever we try to share God's truth, which is counter to how they would understand things or how they want to live. How, when we're witnessing, do we, do we approach them in love and, and not, not come off in any more way offensive than we need to be, but also continue to give the truth in love? Is, is that... Don't do that. To me. <laughs> yeah. So, um, if you guys have your Bibles, you can turn them to Romans 13, and there are more than you know the first seven verses of this of this chapter. So, um, <laughs> Romans Romans 13 and in verse eight. So we, we we talk about truth and love. The problem is, is so often we allow the world to define what love is. And so we say the truth and love. I need to present the truth and love, meaning I need to present the truth and then in the world's definition of love, right? And I think that's because we hear what they say love is so often. But God defines love as this. Oh, nothing to anyone. This is starting in verse 8. Oh, nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. So love is fulfilling the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. If there, excuse me, and if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not work evil against a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And so when we were talking about how do I present the truth in love, 
Well, my definition of love is a lot different than the world's definition of love. So when I'm presenting the truth in love, you know, I'm following God's standard for how I need to love that person. That is calling out their sin. Uh, I don't do that in a hateful way uh, because I'm a sinner myself, saved by grace. I make that very clear. Um, however, I am not going to sacrifice on the truth. Um, I mean, you look at the great saints of old, not just in the Bible, but throughout church history. Well, they're confronting a culture that is, is wrapped in sin. They do so, and everyone thought they were hating. They hated them. Everyone thought the Puritans, for example, were these prudes, right? <laughs> they were just these guys who hated fun, right? Or they hated, hated love. They were just so serious. But you read them, and that's not what you get. Same with the Reformers. Same with, you know, my personal hero is John Knox. I mean, the guy confronted pretty much everyone that he came across, right? But he did so with an affection, uh, towards these people and a love that actually want to propel them towards godliness. And so if you want to confront someone with love, you, knowing what love is, is it's the law of God. Um, and it's the moral law of God. And so knowing that and, and, and going towards that as we talk to people and share the truth, it's the truth in love. Truth is the main thing here, right? And right now, the truth to the world is not loving. And so to them... They can't, they, they're going to think that the truth is not love. Well, we can't sacrifice uh, the truth. And so I don't, I don't think that, this is my personal opinion, I don't think I'm going to see a, a person who believes that they're a woman and they're a man, and I see them from a mile away, I'm not going to hop on my bicycle, you know, so I can go, you know, slap a post-it note on their face telling them they're wrong, right? But... In they already have a post-it note on their face. It's that's the true. Fact it's that makeup. it's a dude <laughs> yeah. dressed as a chick. That's true. And yeah, it, it's all over their face. Yeah. Um, but when I'm engaged in conversations, I'm gonna be like, you know, you are not a woman. Like I, if if that comes with repercussions, I, it comes with repercussions. But I, I, John Knox, what was said to him when he died was he yeah. had such a fear of God that he could not fear man. And I think that's where I think the biggest problem isn't necessarily the things we face in culture. It's we as Christians have such a low fear of who God is uh, as the creator of the earth and sustainer of the earth and just our, our, he's our judge. Um, and when we start to fear God more, we're much more willing to have these conversations in a way that leads people to Christ uh, versus, versus a way that just is trying to make ourselves look good. If, if, does that answer your question? Yeah, the, the culture has completely flipped those things, and to know that helps you to go into those conversations. So when the culture talks about love, it is not biblical love. So it, you have a lie in, in love. When the culture talks about truth, right? Culture's truth is, is strictly subjective affirmation. That's all the culture's truth is. It's whatever you say your truth is, I must affirm whatever that, whatever that is. On any topic... That's, that's the, the modus operandi of our culture. And so their idea of truth is not truth. That's not, that cannot possibly be truth by definition. Um, and when you know those things, then you can easily see why, why when, it, when it says that God didn't give us a spirit of fear, that's because when God met the requirements of sin in our lives, there's nothing to fear anymore. What is there to fear? If God has you marked and accounted for as sanctified, holy, and set apart, right? As, as marked as, as the member of the royal priesthood that he is building his temple. If you're marked that way by God, it doesn't matter what can happen to you here. Nothing matters down here anymore. And so don't, don't run towards the world's view of love, which is some sort of disgusting view of kindness acceptance, which is not helpful to anyone. It's not loving to lie to people. That is unloving. You run to God's, God's word, which that's the truth in love. You can't be loving without the truth. It's not possible. Ephesians tells us that. If you think you're going to be loving by being culturally kind to someone and affirming their reality, you're not. So you sometimes have to be a jerk. Sometimes it's loving for me to grip up my child as I'm yelling at them while they're trying to run into the street for death. That's loving, right? It's loving for me to discipline my child to keep them away from things. And you're like, 
well, these people aren't your child. No, I'm just trying to give you pictures of the reality of love. Sometimes love looks and sounds harsh to our soft, cultural, kind motif. But sometimes that's exactly what ne what's necessary. You're not going to take down Babylon with square guns. So you, you, don't, you don't walk into culture like, oh, how can I love this person who's obviously spewing death all over themselves and everyone that's around them? Daniel helped take down Babylon with salad and a prayer meeting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think one of the things I would add to that is... Um, Relationships matter a whole lot. And we have to guard our hearts against just looking at the culture as the bad guy. Um, you know, Paul says, and such were some of you. Um, ministry is done in the context of relationships. And are we, you know, I had a, there was a guy named Phil Downer at a men's retreat I was at once. And he said, they're not your enemies, they're POWs who have Stockholm Syndrome. And, and you think about it, they're blinded, they're slaves to sin, right? They're captives of the evil one. And I think we need to stop looking at it as an us versus them. Our enemies are spiritual forces, right? Ephesians 6. And I think the, it starts first and foremost, like do I, do I really care about that person or do I care just about winning the argument or winning the individual, first and foremost? Um, and so I think the first thing I would, you know, Rosaria Butterfield, if for those of you who heard of her, she was a English professor, feminist, lesbian, and it, she came to faith and has an amazing testimony. But it was the hospitality, the building of a relationship that a pastor and his wife built with her that opened her ear to that. And so I think I, the first thing I would just recommend at a practical level is try to build relationships with the people so they know you actually care about them, first and foremost. I think that's so undervalued. And I think because the, the culture is becoming so hostile, whether we realize it or not, we've become a lot more hostile as well, too. You know, as much as I love to come and take a t-shirt, there's also within the reform circles just a little swagger of wanting a fight. You know, and I like, I, I like a good fight. You know, but we have to guard, like, the way we fight can be very different. So I would practically say one relationship building and I noticed that when I start building relationships with people, they're far, they have so many misconceptions of me, and I have so many misconceptions of them. And you start building relationships, and you're like, oh, wow, like, yeah, you might be, you know, a liberal leftist lesbian, but we can laugh and joke and genuinely get along with one another on a lot of things. And I can care for that person, and next thing you know, they're okay with me praying for them. So I would just say, first and foremost, the culture, it, when we talk about culture, we're talking about a general worldview ethos that the, that's in 1 John 2, you know, verses 15 through 17. But be careful you don't demonize the people within the culture because they're the ones who need rescue first. Secondly, I would say to that is I think what makes it so hard is the fact that whether we admit it or not, we want to be liked. Everybody wants to be liked. And... When you start talking to somebody, you don't want, most of us don't want to offend people. We don't want to hurt someone's feelings. You don't want to sit across from someone and say, no, what you're doing really is wicked before God, if you care about that person. If you don't care about that person, you'll say anything. And then you'll be like, oh, look at them. They just hate God. They don't love the truth. But if, you, if your heart genuinely cares for them, you're not going to want that. So first and foremost, you have to seek to please God. Paul says in Galatians 1.10, Am I striving to please men? If I were still striving to please men, I would not be a slave of Christ. So the heart motivation matters. Am I doing this to put a smile, so to speak, to put a smile on the Lord's face, to, to please the Lord? Or do I care too much about hurting this person? So keep your love affections in the proper order. Love the Lord your God. And out of that comes love your neighbor. Genuinely build a relationship with them. But then in 1 Corinthians 5... Toward the end there, he says, for what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Are you not to judge those who are within the church? So I think there's a difference between witnessing and, and sharing with an outsider and judging them. You know, the reality, guys, I, I'm far more concerned about how much sin we allow to happen in the church. We're far more vocal about trying the culture, this and that. But there's a lot of stuff in our, within our own church walls that we let slide because someone made a profession of faith. So my thing is, I judge the insider. I plead with the outsider. 
And I think that, I think sometimes we do it the other way around. We plead with the person in our church, oh, please just turn away from this. Please turn, well, we don't enact church discipline. We don't do all those things. But then the outside, we're like, how dare you? How dare you live that way? I can't believe you. Well, you're expecting spiritual fruit from somebody who's spiritually dead. Go ahead, princess. Thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to add, Justin? Or? I was just going to add, you said before that uh, Daniel took down Babylon with salads in a prayer meeting. If that's the case, we're not getting anywhere anytime fast. No, no, no. So. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say that there's, a con- there's different contexts, and I think you're pointing out the different contexts and realities of both witnessing uh, for the glory of God and also discipling and nurturing for, for the glory of God. You know, there's a there's a different context talking to a family member that you have relationship with that 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 you know is is practicing everything opposite of the Lord is a different context than when you're having an interaction with someone uh, in the town square. Those are two different interactions, and they're going to have different flavors to them. Um, because again, it can be just as loving to calmly talk to your uncle who you want to repent and turn to to Christ uh, and loving them, and it can be just as loving to actually be bold with the uh, blue-haired man woman that's screaming in your face because you're handing out tracks in the park. Right. Like those are two different interactions. That the the boldness and being assertive in that park situation can be just as loving as the calm walking through that relationship with your uncle. So your context does, does need, need to be addressed when you're there and you're, you killed it on the church, man. Like and bold, we have problems in the church. <laughs> bold doesn't mean a bully. Like I think sometimes we misunderstand what it means to be bold. Bold doesn't mean I come in with like a hammer swinging and everybody's a nail. Bold means I am firmly resolved and confident in the truth of God's word and will share that without fear of man. But how that's communicated, bold doesn't necessarily have to be shouting and angry and this and that. And, and, and what we are called to go against and fight against in, for, in 2 Corinthians 10, he says here, For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but divinely inspired, divinely powerful for the tearing down of strongholds. We tear down speculations and every lofty thing raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So what we're trying to do, what we're really fighting against is a dominant worldview, belief, godless ideologies. We're not trying to tear down and destroy the individual. And I think sometimes we get caught up in that mire of it. Great. It is 3.33. Does anybody have one more question? Oh my gosh. <laughs> the man has two questions. He raises his hand. More yes, question? I have a question. <laughs> two. <laughs> he didn't thir- raise his hand up. They put it down and back up. I have 32 uh, questions. Yeah. yeah. So I thank you guys for showing up for it and uh, appreciate it. Um, but so my question is on, I guess, more of the... What are you doing? Okay, open your mouth and talk. Come on, question. Let's go here. Okay, so, so with the, I'm looking more of uh, like a definition of fear, courage, and valor. And is it a sin to be afraid to have fear? I know we're not supposed to fear anything other than valor. Everybody just touched on it up there. Well, I'm not doing any more. So my question would be then... To have courage, you have to have, there has to be fear. There's otherwise courage than necessary. So would courage be valid then, if we're not supposed to have fear? That would be my question, other than the courage to come to the cross. Right? Because if we're only supposed to fear God, that could be the only fear I can see, or the only time you need courage, that you should want to have courage. Can I see if I heard your teaching right when you taught about courage? Sure. Oh, okay. Can you try to repeat his question? I'm not sure. Oh, no, you go ahead and do it. I'm sorry. I'm not sure I can succinctly do it. Okay. Uh, the question being, uh, if God has not given us a spirit of fear, if we're actually not supposed to fear, then how can we actually enact courage? Because courage is, in its essence, um, it's action under duress. It's, it's doing something despite the fear. Or the danger also is a part of courage. If there's danger involved, doing that action could be courageous. Going into the burning building is an act of courage, an act of bravery, because you are 
throwing aside the the your safety and entering into the dangerous situation to do what needs to be done uh, and what is right to do. So when you had described um, courage, you described the reality that only a it you requires an actual biblical uh, person to even be able to display true courage, true biblical courage, God's courage, because it's not possible. Like while we can see these acts of courage done, um, we 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 can see it and mark it as as courageous, even from the world standard. To be to be literally courageous requires the the ability to glorify God in what you're doing. Uh, and if you can't glorify God in it, then you're actually not able to fully grasp what that courage is supposed to be that God that comes from God. Is that right? Right. More or less. Yeah, and I think fear. Right. You can, it's hard to have just one definition of fear. If there's a lion running at me, that's a healthy fear. Right. That God has wired in you to flee that which can destroy. Right. Um, if somebody breaks into my house, there can be a fear of fight or flight response. There's the fear of the Lord. So I think specifically as it relates to the culture and the world, what we're talking more is a fear of man, right? And the fear of man means I am more concerned about what an individual can do or think of me than my position before the Lord, um, positionally, right? So this is why I said true courage has to be empowered by the Holy Spirit because that's where your foundation is. I, I have it written here, uh, the spirit-empowered ability to act decisively and boldly no matter the circumstances, right? Because I know where I stand with the Lord, I can decisively give to myself to all that God requires. Now, because we live in a fallen world, infected by sin, fear is going to be a part of the world we live in, right? In the garden, Prior to the fall, the only fear that would have existed would have been a fear of God, which is like a deep reverency for all that God is and capable of. But when sin entered the world, so did all the brokenness and problems. And so that's where now you get the perversion of fear. And we fear a million other things more than we fear God. Um, and so that's why in order to get back to that proper fear, which is what we see prior to the fall, we have to be by faith so that we fear God and the fear of other things no longer kind of rules and reigns over us, if that makes any sense. Um, yeah, that, well, that was kind of more of a question. If we're not supposed to have this fear, then why, then why would courage be valid if we don't have this fear? Because the, the fear that Alex was just addressing is the fact that there is, there is still healthy fears that exist. Mm -hmm. And it actually goes right into what the well, definition yeah, of courage you just outlined. Yeah. Well, fear sin. So then, not, I guess, they have to be like not all the time. I would say, sorry, I would just say that fear sometimes is not a sin, but cowardice is a sin all the time. It says yeah. God hates the cowardly. Right. And so when we are cowards, then which we in our common vernacular would call that fearful, I think maybe cowardice is a better yeah. way of defining it. That is the sin is to be a coward, which is giving into the fear of man. Um, and then when we free up that definition, right, then fear, uh, not being sinful is fearing the yeah. Lord, uh, fearing in a healthy fear situation, a bear running at me, like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get out of Dodge, right? Um, but me standing up to that bear necessarily is not, <laughs> me not, me running away from a bear is not cowardice, right? No. That's just smart. <laughs> Uh, but me backing out of a, uh, a situation to share the gospel, for instance, um, because I'm fearful, really what that is is cowardice. Because the Bible's sense. two aspects of the way it talks about fear is fear of God and fear of man. Now, the physiological aspects of fear, like a bear, or if I'm flying home tonight and we had turbulence and I recognize, you know, that's more of a physiological response. But as far as how the mind processes fear of man, fear of God, fear of man, cowardice is like to John's point, that is always a sin. And no matter how much we contend in this, in this life here, we have to understand fear will always exist because none of us have been perfected yet. And so you have to come to grips with the fact that we looked at Gideon, Gideon acted in courage and there was still fear present. And God even recognized that for your fearful, I'll make this allowance for Pura to be with you. Um, you have to recognize you'll always have some degree of fear of man in your life because on this side of eternity, you're being sanctified. You're not glorified yet. And that spirit of fear that is that we do not are not given by God, that is the the 
level of cowardice fear. That is immobilizing fear. It's immobilizing fear you're not able to act, and that does not come from God. What God gives is that courage to act decisively like men, right? That's what God gives. That's what comes from God. The spirit of fear that causes cowardice and an immobility, right? Because it's controlling. That, that does not come from God. And for the second question, unrelated, um, was on, I talked to just about it earlier, was First Corinthians chapter 11. I, kind of, I caught it out of the corner of my eye the other day, or ear, and so it forced me to read it. It's about um, men not needing covering because they were made in the image of God. Women requiring covering, that's why they have long hair, and men have short hair because they were made in the image of man. And then when they pray, they cover themselves when they pray because I, I don't, I'm not sure. So what does it all mean? Are they supposed to be covering themselves? Are we supposed to have short hair? Are they supposed to have long hair? What is the beginning of chapter 11? That's a great this question. This is a question for Alex. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a cultural component played out here in the culture back then, right? And we see throughout scriptures that the glory of the woman is her long hair. But the head covering was culturally at that point an act of submission showing that she was taking, uh, the, the husband was leading and that she would receive instruction from him and things of that nature. Um, so we have women at our church that still wear head coverings because they believe that it's an outward expression showing that she's in submission to her husband and that she isn't going to be unruly in the church service. Well, if it was, that was written by Paul, not right in the yeah. Right? So if, is that an instruction he was giving to the people in the church? That, he was giving that, yeah. Is it a cultural thing just for that church? He did that, so that... that right, so this is where you get into... There's some debate there. So if you guys have heard of R.C. Sproul, his church still had hub coverings. Um, and so uh, the question is, is that an abiding command or is there a principle there that we're supposed to continue, right? Is it the actual head covering or the principle? And you'll find good division on both sides of that. It's not wrong to wear a head covering. I wouldn't say it's wrong to not wear it. Um, but if the woman is in a, not in submission to her husband, is the bigger issue going on there and to the leadership going well, on? Well, the, all, well, the bigger issue to me on that in, 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 the, in the regard would be more of if you're going to say that that's cultural, then, then, what of what, then why don't we say it's cultural when we have women as pastors? That's the easy. That's an easy answer, um, because when God, right. So this goes back to the creation order, though, right? And so we have to understand one: the headship of a church mirrors that. You see the headship in home, then you see a headship in the in the church. And Christ is the head of the church, right? The husband is the head of the home. When a woman becomes the head of a church as a governing, giving authority over a man, she's flipping the natural order that we see in the creation account of a woman being a helpmeet, being under the leadership and submission of a man. So it inverts the complete creation order, even though we see from the very beginning. Thus, the serpent approaches the woman first, and the husband takes his cues from his wife, and we get into this whole mess of sin. Um, and so we see that. Now, to your point, though, there's women that are gifted. This isn't a question. I just want to make sure it's not a question of gifting if women are gifted to preach. There's some women that are very gifted. This is the question would be more of when when do you take the word as as its word versus when when do you go home? Right. So I do you do you notice anyone in our culture wearing head coverings often? No. Right, so then it's not a cultural. <laughs> so like, so for culturally for us, it actually would be an. We would have to have an imposition of their cultural practice into our cultural practice to even begin to understand what their cultural issue was. Whereas there's no. So then you ask the other simple question: Do you do you notice that there are pastors in our culture? Okay, so we already have pastors, so we already have that one covered. That's not that's not a that's a that's a cross cultural thing. We both have pastors, whether it's you know Timothy in Ephesus, Titus in Crete, right, or Paul. Like he's they're constantly setting up elderships throughout the areas they go, and that still continues to this day. We still have pastors, so that's not a cultural imposition imposition on us. That's actually what the church is, led by elders. And so the only two locations where we have qualifications mentioned. For, 
for the calling up of elders to identify qualified men are in First Timothy and Titus, and they explicitly do not. They explicitly call for a one-woman man. It's not possible, right, for a woman to fulfill the role of of the term a one-woman man. No, I'm just trying to say like. That's why I was trying to get the cultural things crossed out of the way. But to, but at your point, though, you were saying that well, nobody wears head covering. It's not cultural. We're so Christians not care what the culture. Right. But the principle, so here, head coverings are not the principle of the head covering, right? This is why it's still, the principle is still abiding. Mm -hmm. It's still about a woman in 1 Corinthians 11, a woman standing out leading the worship service and being in submission to the man, her husband, yeah. right? So regardless of where you wear a head covering or not, that truth, that principle is abiding on the head covering woman and the non-head covered woman in today's culture. So principally, nothing changes. Outwardly, you can wear it or not, but the woman is still... And we see that throughout the whole scriptures is still to be in submission to her male and not lead leadership. And to Justin's point, First Corinthians, I'm sorry, First uh, Timothy 3 shows how the leadership of the church is supposed to be structured. Titus shows how the leadership of the church is supposed to be structured, that women aren't supposed to lead and govern. And throughout church history, we don't see women leading churches, right? So if that was something that the early church would have allowed, we would have seen it, and we don't. I, I just don't, I don't like going, well, are other people doing it? As I'm not saying that. But I'm just saying that. Right, so we don't see it in the scriptures. We don't see women leading the churches in the scriptures. We see the principle, whether you still wear the head covering or not, of women being in submission. And then we see that that has been the dominant understanding from the very beginning of the church. So the idea of women leading churches and women being pastors is a relatively new convention in the scope. of We don't see it in the Old Testament. We don't see it in the New the one exception you can make is Deborah, but that's in the book of Judges, and it showed as a judgment upon Israel, and she's actually leading the nation, not leading the, the spiritual practices of the people there. Yeah, and, and you, the, the way, I don't know if this will help, Ricky, because I, I want to I be helpful. The, it's not just about head coverings. That's, that's, the, that's the principle that applies across yeah. culture. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, Right, which is yep. My struggle is now in the whole rest of the Bible is where you go. It's not about that. It's about the deeper meaning. Where do you draw these lines? Well, you. <clears throat> this this principle is taught in right. This principle is taught in, but in other epistles, right? For a woman not to usurp the authority of her husband, because what was happening in the church was a good thing. Women didn't have rights and privileges in culture in the days of the biblical church. But suddenly, women inside the church who were co-equal image bearers of Christ with, with, with the man of God, right? Suddenly, they were just as free as every man. Suddenly, they were able to learn and grow under the same teaching with no barrier because the temple veil was torn and Christ had united, right, through his blood. Suddenly, the problem that then happened was with this newfound freedom, they were able to interact with the teachings, the services, and speakings. And you had an issue where a woman was able to actually overspeak even what her husband might be doing inside of the service. And that was creating this tension between their own, in their own family about a man, one, needing to step up and lead, right? And a woman not usurping her husband, which is literally the curse in Genesis 3. And what Paul constantly was trying to do is take the freedom and put it back where it is most free into the creative order that God had given. And he does that not just in 1 Corinthians, but he does it throughout the epistles. I you had a lot yeah, of cultures interacting so, so with you had, Can, yeah, can, so I, can I add something real quick? I think your question is, and correct me if I'm wrong, is how do I know when it's a cultural thing and when it's a command? Yeah, thank, thank so you. I, you all keep going. Like, yeah, your question is more how do I know, and I think that's why it's so important to be in a local church, is because doing what you're doing right now and saying this question, how do I know this kind of stuff, you're going to bring people uh, around you who have studied the scriptures and say this is what this is what is happening here, and not just people here, not just your pastor, right? I don't know if you go if he goes to your church or not, but not just your pastor. I don't even know him. I don't even know who that no, is. Yeah. <laughs> but, but 
Yeah, but also throughout church history, Ephesians 4 tells us that there's the foundation of the prophets and apostles, but then there's the teachers, and it's for the building up to perfection, right? So all throughout history, we read people who God's gifted and who have studied the scriptures with their entire lives, and they wrote these things down, and we study what they say. What they're saying is not scripture, right? But what, they're stud- is what they see from study, when they die on, they, or they pass it to the next guy, what he's studying, and we read and we study and we labor and we study because we want to we be approved workmen who need not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And that's the burden. And you're feeling that burden. How do I know that I'm right? You know, because that's, but that's where study comes in. And that's where coming to a local church and, and being willing, like you're doing right now, and to say, look, I, I'm confused on this, <laughs> right? How do I know? And I think that, that the, real, the real heart of that question is, is, is doing study, not just in the word, but study of the culture at the time, study of uh, what, what the territory was like there, what is the, the ge- geography of that time, and really digging into that study. And then when you say, this is what I think it is, you go to your pastor, or that brother is beside you, and you guys are pushing each other on to godliness, and say, hey, does this make sense? You know, that's that's what I always yeah. do. I'm like, because I'm an idiot. Like, I'm not that smart. So I go to people. I'm like, hey, look, does this make does it make sense? You know, just to make sure I'm not dumb. You know, because I already know that's going to happen. So having that guy beside you to just be like, hey, let's push each other. And then let me go to my my authority figure, which is my elder, my pastor, and say, look, this is I'm struggling with this. I've had many wrong opinions in my life, and that's what I've done because I didn't know. <laughs> You know, and I've had people pointing me to the word, pointing me to the scriptures and said, this is why this is. And that's and that's how you're going to get on that. I don't, I don't know if that helps or not. I think the first step in that is identify the principle at work. Right. Here we see this idea that the woman is the glory of the man. The man is the glory of God. Right. The principle of submission. So like right now, let's say a female, let's say a woman in the Middle East comes to faith. The gospel shared. She comes to faith. In the Middle East, the cultural expectation is, is to be covered, right? Why? Because of how femininity is understood there. Now the question becomes, does the biblical principle and the cultural understanding, are they opposed to each other? If they're opposed, you stick with the biblical principle. But if they're not, then there's a certain freedom we have in Christ to then adopt that, to, to, to work within that cultural expectation. For example... We all wear pants. Men didn't wear pants in the Bible. Right? But it's not, it's complete, but to wear a skirt right now would be to display femininity, to be womanish. Right? And we understand biblically that a man is supposed to exude a proper level of masculinity. So the principle of masculinity now is expressed in our culture with men wearing pants and not skirts. In that culture, one of the understandings of women was head coverings showing orderly submission in the home. Today, the principle of submission is still there. And uh, in America, at least, the woman has the freedom to, ex- to display that principle with a head covering or not. So I isolate what is the timeless biblical principle and then ask, is there a cultural expression of that that mirrors it? Or do I have the freedom to express it differently? If that makes sense. No, it does. Yeah. Uh, but the, print, the principle, the truth is timeless. The expression of it can change depending where you are geographically. A, a Christian woman in, you know, Glassboro is going to look different in how she conducts herself than a Christian woman in Tikrit, Iraq, or Japan. I know you guys said it a couple times, but going back to that chapter 11 verse, it said that man was made in the image of God, women was made in the image of man. But then you guys both said, or you all said that men and women are both made in the image of God. Right, so that's talking about is that God shaped man himself, and then woman was literally created from Adam's rib as a helpmeet alongside him, right? So what we're seeing is that they are equal in, in, in essence, but economy, right? Functional roles, there's a hierarchy. Yep. If that makes sense. Right? Just like my son is nine years old, he's equal to me as a person in worth as a human being, but he's not equal to me in authority. And in what his role is in the home. But they're both definitely. They're both equal in what in, in the in their worth as a human being, but they have different stations, roles, and authority levels in life. Yep. And those are dictated by God. Yeah. God dictates this. And I would say that if you're going to have head coverings in churches, for for anyone, they should always look like all the ones Padme wore in Star Wars episodes one, two, and three. 
um, those are the appropriate head coverings uh, that we should use. And I mean, on, on that note, um, yeah, I guess we'll, we'll wrap this up. Uh, let me pray, and then, uh, then we'll dismiss. Uh, thank you, everybody. It was an fan absolutely fantastic weekend. Heavenly Father, I thank you um, so much for all of these brothers. I thank you for John and for Alex for, uh, for coming here to South Jersey to, uh, to help us reap the benefits of your word. I thank you for their time in preparation, their time in travel, um, and their time in delivering uh, the messages. Thank you for Justin for prepping and delivering as well. Um, I pray that you give them safe travels as they head back. I pray that you um, implant these words and your word into our hearts so that we can take them back to our own local churches and in our own local communities and that we can be uh, strong men of valor there uh, in our homes and in our communities and in our churches. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.